Good morning. I'm Dan. I'm part of the lead team. We're going to be reading this morning from Isaiah 1, 10 through 20. A little shorter than the last time I was up here, I promise. If you weren't here before, I read like 15 extra verses on accident. Just wanted to give you a little extra context, but this week we're going to stick to what's written. So Isaiah 1, 10 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What, is, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? But no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. You have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the wisdom. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall, eat, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thanks, Dan. Good job. We're continuing in our series this morning, uh, Uncommon Cause, and this morning's message is entitled Relationship. Relationship. Um, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to play uh, a couple of different sports, and uh, one of them was soccer, and uh, oftentimes when we were a, an away team, we would end up in the locker room with another away team. It was just kind of the way that it would happen if they were playing uh, a different sport that day. And so one time in particular, as I was reflecting uh, on the message this morning, I was thinking of a time that we were in an away locker room and there was the rugby team that was from another school and they were there playing the same school that we were playing and we were sharing a locker room. And so we're in there getting changed and getting ready and a guy from the rugby team uh, starts kind of freaking out a little bit and he says, hey, I, I need to darken this, this line on my sock. I need, I need to darken my line. And uh, so we're just continuing getting ready and, and he increases his voice. Like, I need, to, I need to darken my line. Guys, does anybody have a Sharpie? I don't have my Sharpie. I need to darken my line. I'm like, what in the world? I've never played rugby, but I'm like, what is darken the line mean? Like, what are you talking about? And so uh, we just keep getting ready. And he starts to get frantic. And he was a big dude. And he starts like, like almost like he's on the verge of tears. He needs to darken his line. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, there's a line on my sock, my right sock. And so he shows me, he's like, there's a line on it. I need to darken it every time before I take the field. I need to darken my line. I was like, oh, okay. All right, and so everybody's kind of running around. His teammates are frantically looking, and finally they end up finding a Sharpie, and he sits down, and he's like, okay, all right, and he's coloring in this black line that circles the right sock on his right foot. And uh, I'm sitting there thinking, I know nothing about rugby, but I'm not sure how the dark line around a sock plays in. Maybe that means he's the captain. I don't really know. And... Uh, all of a sudden, one of the guys on my team says, dude, what's the deal with the black line? And uh, he goes, it's, it's just, it's really important, man. It's really important. Like, it goes back to my freshman year. We're like, 
oh, all right. And uh, he's like, uh, yeah, was, did somebody die? And we're like, what? And he asks his teammate, didn't somebody die or something? And the guy's like, what are you talking about? And he goes, remember when we put a black line on our sock my freshman year? And he's like, yeah. And he goes, who, what, like, didn't somebody die or something? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I think so. And she's so like, so he asks another guy, and he's like, I don't know, I, didn't, I wasn't a freshman when you were a freshman. They start talking, and they're asking, and finally it gets to somebody else that played the same year, and he starts talking about how an assistant coach passed away that year, and in honor of him, they all blackened a line around their right sock. And uh, evidently, it was super meaningful. <laughs> right? Nobody could even remember it. And yet this guy couldn't take the field unless he darkened his line. And so uh, I'm sitting there. I said, so do you guys, cause I was just so intrigued. I was like, so do you guys still do that? Like, is it something you've been doing since your freshman year? And he's like, oh no, no, no. Like I- I'm, I'm the only one that keeps on doing it. And so I'm like, Okay, and so normal common sense tells you like, okay, that's because he had a close relationship with this guy, but I'm also recalling he couldn't even remember that that was why he did the line was for that guy. So I was like, I guess I'm, I'm not connecting the dots here. He's like, oh, dude, we did that dark line thing, and I had the best game ever. And so I just decided right then, like, I'm going to keep that dark line on my sock. And so this is the exact same sock that I've had since my freshman year, and you could tell. And he's like, and so before every, you know, before every match when we go out there on the field or before every game, I'm not even sure what rugby games are called, if they're matches or what. He goes, before we take the field, I just, I need to darken that line, like every time. I was like, okay. And I'm thinking in my head, like, and and just so you know, if you've played athletics for any amount of time, that's not that untypical, you know, or uh, that non-typical. I'm not even sure what the right, what? Atypical? No, that can't be right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> this probably is right. <laughs> like, I'm sure you're wrong. No, uh, it's not that atypical. Hmm. Um, they just th- there are just quirky things that people do before they take a field. And one of the things that I want to ask the question about as we head into the text this morning is why do we keep doing things even after they've lost their meaning? Why do we keep doing things? even after they've lost their meaning. And now, maybe you're in the room and you're not very superstitious. You know, Maybe instead you're afflicted with a little bit of OCD <laughs> or uh, some other variation of something that compels you to do something that at some point in the past has lost its meaning. And so maybe the, the easy question, if that resonates, is because you're somewhat superstitious. But more often than not, I think the general answer is that we keep doing things after they've lost their meaning simply because we want to. We just want to. We want to keep doing what it is that we want to do. But do we we really want to do things after they've lost their meaning? What would compel us? Like, what is the thing inside of us that says, I must continue doing this? Even though there's no meaning, even though we can't remember why we did it originally, even though we have to ask a whole group of people to find out why it is that we even do that. What is it that compels us? I want to submit to you that there can really be only one answer and that it's that it makes us feel better about ourselves. We do things that have lost meaning because they make us feel better about ourselves in some way. If we stay with the sport illustration, it makes us feel confident. 
because of superstition. We had a, a good game, and so if we keep doing that same thing that somewhere along the line lost its meaning, lost its original uh, purpose, but for some reason makes me feel better or more confident, then I'll continue doing it. The thing is, it, it doesn't just isolate into areas like sports. It spills over into other areas of our lives where we continue to do things and they've lost their meaning. As humans, Christian or not, whether you're on the spectrum of complete uh, skeptic and not sure that there even is a God, all the way to a committed Christ follower this morning, regardless of who you are, we function rather selfishly when it comes to our own vices. If something makes us feel better, if it reminds us of a simpler time, if it's nostalgic in some way, the, the remember when the good old days, right? We always remember the good old days delusionally, right? Like, oh man, it was so great. Wasn't high school awesome? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, no, man, it was. It really was. No, it wasn't. Like, you're totally remembering the best parts. Wasn't, oh, you know what? If I could just go back to elementary school. Yeah, that was awesome too, right? Like, we just, we remember a simpler time. We remember aspects of our life that serve us well. We're nostalgic. And then we'll relive it. They say there's uh, no lower form of communication than remember when. It's, a, it's an interesting concept that when you have conversation with people, and I'm not a huge fan of small talk. I feel like I kind of stink at it, honestly. Um, but usually when I'm engaged with someone and I want to learn who they are or talk about their lives, I have meaning behind that, and so I'm engaged. But the idea of like mindless conversation, if you think of mindless conversation and people that you don't know that well, the conversation always defaults to, hey, remember when, a.k.a., we have nothing else to talk about. Let's just remember when. It's the lowest form of communication is to relive the past. One may argue that although it's kind of self-serving to be a little nostalgic and to reflect on simpler times, at its core, for the most part, it seems rather harmless, right? Like it's not hurting anybody to to put a black line on your sock or to, to do something that reminds you of a simpler time. There's nothing inherently bad or sinful about that. And I suppose that could be true in situations like your mom always making you a chocolate cake for your birthday. And so when you get married, keeping that tradition alive, you know, it's like nostalgic. It's meaningful. It's harmless, right? It's harmless, right? <laughs> anyway, um, but if you notice the word I used, tradition. I said, when you get married, keeping that tradition alive. It's an interesting word, isn't it? Tradition. You see, traditions can be self-serving and typically harmless. But what if I were to say, you know, it's tradition in my family uh, that when we are dating someone in college, in our senior year, we marry them. It's tradition. Sorry, Meredith. <laughs> She's like, I totally would have played my cards differently. <laughs> She's trapped, right? If I were to say, so I can say, hey, it's tradition that on my birthday we make chocolate cake. And you guys are like, oh, that's nice. But if I'm like, hey, the tradition is whoever you're dating your senior year of college, you marry. You're like, that's a little creepy, right? Why? 
Because tradition and relationship don't connect. It doesn't make sense to replace one with the other. In all seriousness, tradition is no substitute for what should be a relationship. It's kind of an extreme example, but you see, tradition is mindless repetition. That's what it is. We always do this. So I don't have to think about it anymore. We just always do it. And so anytime anybody asks a question, we do it because we've always done it. That's why. <laughs> and uh, and I, in fact, I need to do it. Otherwise, I'm not going to be as confident as I typically am. We've just always done it. Mindless repetition. In fact, Isaiah, in this text that Dan read a moment ago, is addressing mindless repetition. It's what he's talking about at the core of the text this morning. Verse 11 says this, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now to you this morning, you might read that text and be like, nor do I. Yeah, like, not sure where you're going there, Lord, but uh, we're on the same page. There's something that you've, you've got to understand about uh, society then. You see, when sin entered the world, entered the world because of the rebellion that Adam had against God. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden, there's this moment where Adam and Eve decide that they want to eat of the tree of truth and knowledge. For what? In order to know what God knows. And so right there, sin, sin enters the world and fractures a relationship. Fractures a relationship between humanity and God. Because of man's attempt to be like God. I want to be like God. I want to know what God knows. I want to be all-knowing. I want to be in the know. And as a result, sin enters the world. And they're told to leave the Garden of Eden. Relationship is fractured. And the way that they must uh, deal with the sin that has entered their life is to pay the penalty of that sin through the shedding of blood. And so that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about literal old school sacrifices. That's what Isaiah is addressing because in this society, in the nation of Judah, they're literally still in the old covenant where when they fail in fulfilling the law, they have to pay with the blood of an innocent animal, a spotless innocent animal. And so they bring these animals and they sacrifice them to pay for the sin of their lives. And I could go into a lot more detail as to what that looked like or what that involved, but it was a, a rather costly thing because you had to raise a specific animal, fat and uh, protein and all of that was very expensive. And so the idea of sacrificing an animal was a significant deal. And what God is saying right here is, I have had enough of it. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Basically, listen, your attempt to come into right relationship with me, not interested. This is horrifying news. Like if you're in that society and you're hearing Isaiah speak, you're like, what do you mean? Like that's what we do. That's what we have to do in order to come into relationship with God in order to right 
our relationship with God. But you see, the nation of Judah was going through mindless repetition. They were just sacrificing because they knew they should. They were going through the motions. They were religious, but there was no relationship. Mindless repetition. Oftentimes, uh, when I tell people what I, you know, yeah, I'm a pastor of a church, they're like, oh, I'm religious too. And I always like kind of cringe because I I don't want to be like, "Um, I'm not really a religious person. But I want to say I'm not really a religious person because there's a lot of things that I do religiously. Like I religiously brush my teeth, right? You just go through the mindless repetition of religiously brushing your teeth. And so when you categorize something that is a spiritual relationship with a living God and you call it religion, it's like, eh, that's kind of gross. Like, it's so much more. And yet, I don't want to have this conversation be like, actually, I'm not religious. Uh, I have a relationship with the Lord. <laughs> you know, like, like, okay. And that's actually how I speak. Uh, in public, but you know, it just, I I think sometimes when we're not really sure how to to interact in those moments, we have a tendency to almost use spiritual jargon or to come off weird. And so, um, oftentimes I'll, I'll just say, well, it's, it's not really a, a religious thing. It's more of, um, engaging in a relationship with God, but I know what you mean because religion is mindlessly going through the repetition. It's not a relationship. So why go through the motions? Why go through the motions? Why go through the religious motions? Why do it? If we know that there's no connection, there's really two reasons. Superstition. Some of you are like, ah, no, stop. I don't want to talk about this anymore. (laughs) Because the, the reason you pray before you eat, if you do, is because of superstition. That's where it originated. St. Patrick, when he interacted with the Irish, he decided, man, we got these, these heathens are really messed up, and so we need to try to infiltrate them with spirituality, and so what we're going to do is we're going to feed into their superstition and tell them, listen, if you don't bless your food before you eat, you might die. And they're like, what? A lot of people are dying. We should do it. And so St. Patrick actually got a bunch of, uh, of heathen people to begin praying out of superstition. And some of you probably still pray before you eat, not because you want to interact with God, not because you actually want to thank him for the blessing that's in front of you, but because you just mindlessly go through the repetition. Lord, bless this food in my body. Thank you. Amen. All right, let's eat. Hey, did somebody pray yet? No, not yet. How about now? Boom, pray. You know, I have a friend that at New Year's prays over all of his meals for the rest of the year. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, dude, I'm praying for my food. What? Yeah, that way I don't have to remember before I sit down. He's like, I believe in a powerful God. I'm like, all right, whatever, man. You know, so like there's this this process that we go through. We've marginalized a relationship into religious, mindless repetition. It's disengaged from our heart. We're on the cusp of what the nation of Judah was on. To the point where we're going through the motions and yet we've disconnected our heart from everything. So there's superstition or there's selfishness. I'm doing this because it's going to benefit me. Listen, human tendency is to use religious behavior as a means 
of attempting to manipulate God. We think we can force God to do things. Say things like, hey, I've earned it. Come on, God. What the heck? Like, I've been going to church. I don't even like to hear what Claude says. I fall asleep half the time. I don't even give a rip, but I'm there. You owe this to me, God. (laughs) You owe me. Or how about this? We shouldn't have to endure this difficulty because after all, we're Christians. I've heard that a lot. It's poor theology to believe that, that we live in a fallen world and yet in some way we're exempt from the difficulties of the world that we're in the midst of. It's why the world looks at Christians and say, you're a joke. Because when difficulty hits, we crumble. Because we don't understand that the relationship that we have is not to help us avoid difficulty, but to give us strength in the midst of the difficulty. God, you'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. In the midst of this pain, in the midst of this hurt, I can have hope and I can have joy. Not because I'm, not because I'm some weirdo that loves the pain, but because in the midst of the pain, I have a relationship with a living God who's sustaining me. <clears throat> That's different. It's a relationship, not religion. Religion says, hey, you earned it. You earned it. Go through the motions. You know, I know people that have memorized God's promises. They go through scripture and they memorize scripture. They memorize God's promises as a way of getting what they want. Memorize these promises. Why? So I can remind God he owes me. (laughs) What? Yeah, because listen, it's a promise in the Bible, so I'm going to hold God to it. Ha ha, got you, God. You said this. It's poor theology. If you have a child in the room, nothing says I love you like when your kid reminds you of something that's owed them. Right? (laughs) Hey, but dad, you said, I love you, son. And so now out of the abundance of my deep love for you, I'm going to provide for you because you reminded me in some hook and bait type way. It's a lot different than reminding the Lord of the promises that are within his word in the midst of relationship. It's a lot different between my child declaring what it is that's owed to them and coming up and saying, hey, daddy, um, remember when you said we could maybe have ice cream tonight? Is it getting too late to do that? Like, eh. Let's have some ice cream, right? Out of the abundance of the relationship and the connection, I'm reminded of the promise. And so I give because I love. Not because I'm obligated. Not because my kids got me, you know, Dad, you said. Oh, well, I guess I said it, honey. So (laughs) I got to do it. If that's the way you function as a parent, good luck with that. The fact is, Oftentimes, kids lack perspective. They say things that are owed them as if they deserve it. I deserve this. I earned it. You're like, no, you didn't. I remember very clearly that I'm the one that has a job. (laughs) You did not. How about this? We'll make a deal. I'll let you sleep in the house tonight that I own. I'll allow you to wear clothes that I purchased. I'll give you food that I bought. Look at how benevolent I am. <laughs> I am the giver of all gifts. Like when you said we could have ice cream, you know? <laughs> Why do kids do that? Why 
Did we do that as kids? Why did we do that as kids? Listen, for the ease of the room, I'll say, why did they? Why did they? Because they want what they want. Because they're selfish. Because they're blinded by their desire to be in control. So they violate and sometimes damage relationship. Almost like they think they should be the parent. Almost like maybe sometimes we think we should be God. Sound familiar? We didn't just do it as kids. We do it now. All the time. We declare that we know better about our lives. That we're deserving of something. That something is owed to us. That in some way, because we've gone through the mindless repetition of what is religiosity, that in some way God owes us something. There's something fractured at the core of what we understand to be a relationship. And listen, there's no one in this room that's exempt from that. I don't care how good your kid is, there's a temptation for them to declare what is owed them. The same way that it doesn't matter how good of a Christian you are, there's a temptation to revert back to the fallen condition that is humanity to say, listen, I want to be the Lord of my own life. It's the definition of sin. In our selfishness and in our desire to be the lords of our own lives, we declare what is owed to us. In verses 12 through 15 of the passage read reveals that their religious activity was literally disgusting to God. Literally disgusting. Why? Because it was a form of manipulation. It was a form of um, of an attempt to try to get what they wanted from God, to go through the mindless repetition of spiritual activity and possibly superstition. Not only are we unable to be good enough to earn favor with God, but our religious activity, according to what we learn in this text, our religious activity that is void of relationship puts us in greater deficit. What a horrifying thought. Be like, you know what? I'm going to earn it today. I'm going to come to church. The first day of summer vacation, I'm going to get the kids ready. We're going to church. God will be so impressed. Are we just going through the motions? And listen, I'm not here to question the motive of your heart. Maybe your motives are entirely pure. I know that there's things that I do where my motive is entirely pure, and then there are other things where my motive is simply going through the motions, void of meaning. And the word of God is telling us that's just, it's empty. Morality is not an indicator of a relationship with God. That's tough for some of us because I think maybe some of us were raised to say, listen, if I can be good enough, then maybe God will find me worthy. And so we try to curb our behavior. We try to put on our spiritual face and we lean into morality and behavior modification. And we even accidentally, if you have children, we put that on our kids a little bit. Like, hey, perform for mommy and daddy. Be good, impress everyone. 
And as a result, we actually distance relationship. And so being good is not an indicator of a relationship with God. And this won't be news to anyone in here, I don't think. But we can have the appearance of obedience, but be living in rebellion, right? The appearance of obedience, and yet living in rebellion. That was the nation of Judah. This appearance of obedience, going through the motions like, hey, we do all the sacrifices. And God's like, you have removed the relationship aspect and the heart condition from any of your actions. And so it's just this mindless repetition of religion. And it's disgusting. So what can we do? Nothing. We are doomed to hell. No, I'm just kidding. In and of ourselves, we really can do nothing. Otherwise, we just start the cycle over again. Let's pull up our bootstraps. And you know what you do? You, you leave here and mean it. <laughs> this time, when you want to remove a relationship, don't. Be better. That can crush us. So what we do is we acknowledge that what we deserve is hell. We come to the end of ourselves and we acknowledge the fact that we deserve nothing in this world with the exception of hell itself. We don't like that on so many levels, right? Because listen, I'm a good person. I don't deserve hell. What are you talking about? Jonathan Edwards said that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. I love that quote. It's a reorienting of our heart and mind. Like, wait a second. The only thing I bring to the table, the only thing I can offer up to God, the only thing I bring to this whole salvation narrative is the sin that made it necessary. It's humbling. Especially when we want to be so right. We want to be so proud. Especially as Americans, man, we want to we earn it and then we want to say what it is we deserve. And verses 18 through 20, say this, says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. He doesn't leave Judah in this moment of desperation. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. And then verse 20, he's like, just so you know, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord's saying, stop, stop playing games. Enough is enough. We're, we're done with the religiosity. You see, in their day, there was a cleansing process that, that they would go through. And actually, uh, earlier in verse, the first part of verse 16 says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. It's actually pretty interesting. Um, what the Lord is actually saying is that they had the capacity to go through the redemption process. You see, in their society, they had a cleansing process. And so the Lord is saying, listen, you've been mindless in your religiosity, but go back to the cleansing process and make yourself pure before me. What he's saying is repent. Repent. Acknowledge the emptiness of your actions. Repent and reset your relationship with me. I will still extend grace even in the midst of your rebellion. 
So in their day, there's this cleansing process. But today, for us, because of what Christ has done, because of the life that Jesus lived, you see, he lived the sinless life. And so, therefore, when he went to the cross, he was the pure, spotless lamb. And so he was the sacrifice for our sins. So we don't have to, to have sacrifices today. We don't have to pay for our sin with blood because of the blood that was shed by Jesus himself. Jesus died the death that we deserve so that we could live the life that he earned. We can be called children of the living God because Jesus has called us his children. We can make a choice to live in relationship with God. And that proximity, as we said last week, will reorient our hearts and minds. Something I want to ask you in the midst of this, though, is who or what is the actual Lord of your life? You see, that's the crux of the whole thing. At the end of the day, what is it that you're actually assigning worth to? You're going through motions. Are you going through the motions for yourself? Is it kind of a form of superstition? What is it that you actually worship? Who or what do you worship? Do you assign worth to above all else, even above God? Not all the time, but when it comes down to it, what trumps your relationship with God? Is it comfort? Is it just sleeping a little longer? And when you wake up, you'll go through the religious repetition. Maybe make sure you're cool with God. Hey, I prayed a second. We're cool, right? I got to get off to work. Are you worshiping your status, your job, your children, your spouse? You know, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. And so idolatry can rest in good things. You can be like, how is this sin? Because it's somewhere along the line we placed it above what should be the main thing, God. And so what are you worshiping? What is it that you're white-knuckled with? Possessions? finances, career. I don't know. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that it's something for all of us because of the fallen human condition and the fact that at the end of the day, we are striving and striving to put ourselves in the center of our lives instead of where God should be. Will you choose to worship the Lord today? Because you know, it's a daily decision. If we all struggle with it in this room, then that means that we're not destined to just be like, so we all struggle with it. So welcome to the club. We're all a hot mess. God bless. See you next week. Like, hey, you guys still a mess? Yeah, me too. Like, no, you, you break the pattern by resetting your heart every morning. That when you put your feet on the ground, you say, okay, Lord, above all else, I want to live for you today. God, would you quiet the things that I, that I want to assign worth to above you, will you give me strength to assign glory and honor to you and you alone in my relationships and my decisions, whatever it looks like to reorient your heart and life with the truth of the gospel every morning 
so that you can walk in the fullness of who God called you to be. And it's amazing how when you reorient your heart and mind, how everything all of a sudden comes into perspective. How all of a sudden the things that that you strive for just suddenly, they don't matter quite as much. And it's not like you're disengaged from the world. It's just the priorities of your life are set right. It's not religious motion. It's a relationship. And out of that relationship flows life change. We get it so backwards. We get it so backwards. We say, listen, I'll engage God once I fix my life. So I'm going to work really hard to fix me, and then I'll come and God will be so impressed. It's not like that at all. It's like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to lean in and admit what God already knows. I'm a mess. God, would you do a work in me so that the outflow of my life would reveal you to everyone I come in contact with? And so we say every Sunday that the text requires something from us. It's one thing to come to a service and be like, oh, all right, I get it. I need to reorient my heart and mind. I need to reorient the priorities of my life. But what is the application this morning? I have a question that I want you to leave this place considering, and it's this. In what tangible ways can I display adoration to the Lord? In what tangible ways can I display adoration to the Lord? You see, because the nation of Judah needed a reset, and we're going to dig more into that. You're going to realize just how messed up they were. (laughs) And in essence, it will reveal where we're at as well. It's what I love about the text is that the Lord is speaking to us this morning, and, and we have an opportunity to respond where Judah didn't, where they refused to. We have a decision to make this morning where we can say, listen, I am going to reveal adoration, praise, and worship to the Lord in a tangible way. And maybe it's this morning. Maybe it means that as we go into a time of worship in response to the word this morning, that for the first time, you'll sing the words not out of religious obligation, but because you're going to allow the words to connect to your heart. That for the first time, you you may even uh, raise a hand in a symbol of surrender to the Lord. Not that that's required, but it might be something that in your heart and mind, you say the application is for me to surrender with my, with my physical body to signify what's happening in my spirit, man. And so I'm just, I'm going to surrender to the Lord today that he would have authority and leadership in my life. Maybe this morning for you, a display of adoration to the Lord is to surrender your life to him. You've been attending church, you've been going through religious motions, or maybe you haven't been attending church, and this morning you've heard the reality of the sacrifice that Christ was for you personally. While we were yet sinners, he laid down his life. While we were enemies of God, he loved us. And so this morning, maybe your application is to say, I want to cross that line of faith. I want to come into relationship with God. And if that's you this morning, it's as simple in the quietness of your seat now or later to be able to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me my sins? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. It's that easy. We'll talk about afterwards about next steps that you can take in the way that we'd love to partner with you. But the beginning point is to say, listen, God, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I'm I'm tired of trying to be the Lord of my own life. It's exhausting and it never ends well. 
but in what other ways? For those of you that have already surrendered your life to Christ, what are the tangible ways that you can display adoration to the Lord? If it's not out of song, we say often that we're going to worship in song, but there are other ways to give adoration, whether it's through the tithe or whether it's through a retreat to be able to say, hey, I'm going to spend time just in silence with the Lord. I'm going to spend a morning in prayer once a week or whatever it looks like. Maybe the Lord's compelling you to, to do a fast. And, and I would encourage you to understand what that is before you jump into it and we can answer questions. But I don't know what it is that the application for you is this morning, but I know that it requires all of us to consider what adoration looks like in our lives. So I want you to close your eyes if you would, or at least bow your heads. The worship team is going to make their way up. And as they come up this morning, I want to encourage you to reflect on what tangible ways you can display adoration to the Lord. What is it that the Lord's speaking to you this morning? Is it time to surrender your life? Is it time to have a conversation about the way you deal with finances, your spouse, or just with the Lord? Is it time to to reevaluate the job offer or the item you were thinking about buying or the way you spend your time? I, I don't know. I don't pretend to know, but I know that the Holy Spirit is faithful to, to convict our hearts, to put it, kind of the finger on our heart and say, listen, it's right there. That's, that's the area of your life that, that you're not allowing God to be the Lord of. So as we consider that this morning, as we consider where we can tangibly show adoration to the Lord, we're going to go into a, a time of song. And you don't have to sing. In fact, you don't have to stand. They'll, they'll ask you to stand. And if you want to remain seated, you can. If you want to spend this time in response that looks more like journaling or uh, reflecting or opening up your calendar and setting a time where you're going to spend time with the Lord. Either way, let's not allow the time to pass. Not, let's not just go into the next uh, religious opportunity. Like, oh, now there's a song service. We all stand, you know. Instead, let's have a relationship with the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we pray that you would speak with clarity in our hearts and minds, Lord, that we would, that we would know, that we would have a clear sense of what it is that you're speaking to us something that needs to be reoriented, a time block that needs to be redesignated, a decision with our family that needs to be reconsidered with you in the center rather than our own selfishness or our own superstition or the obligation of what's always expected. Father, would you reorient our hearts and minds to a relationship We simply declare ourselves available to know you, to be known by you. That we would walk in the fullness of what it is to be loved without condition because of who you are and what you've done.